This is Rusty Reno, editor of First Things Magazine, and I am at the editor's desk for our next installment of a regular podcast from the editor's desk. And I have with me Matthew Crawford, uh, author of The Rise of Antihumanism from our September, August-September 2023 issue. This originated as a lecture, First Things Lecture in Washington, D.C. back in March of 2023. But before we get going, Matt, I'd like to tell listeners that you have a substack, Arcadelia, uh, that I subscribe to, and I would urge the listeners to this podcast also to uh, subscribe to Arcadelia. Um, Matt Crawford is one of the most uh, perceptive diagnosticians of the very strange political cultural moment in which we are living. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rusty, and uh, thanks for the warm words for the sub. Good. Uh, you anti-humanism. Uh, well, what would count as political humanism? Political humanism? Yeah, I mean, you. it's anti-humanism and the post-political condition. Uh, that was the title of your lecture. So... When you're thinking about anti-humanism, you're thinking about it in terms of our how we are treated, how we are understood as citizens. Is that fair? Yeah. So, right. The idea is that there's a, um, a kind of common thread that runs through the picture of the human person that seems to be operating in various departments of the human sciences, in technology, and in uh, kind of the approach to governing. And I think it's, um, it's based on a fairly low view of the human being on a number of fronts. Um, and we, I'm sure we're going <clears> to <throat> get into that, but the, the upshot, I think, is that um, sort of the premises, the anthropological premises of Republican government um, are kind of directly at odds with this um, low regard for the human person. So what's the classical view that would, uh, that would be you know, in, in, in sync with the ideals of Republican governance? Well, one thing I suggest in there is that there's a kind of doubleness in our nature um, a recognition of which seems to be tacit in um, the Republican tradition. So what I mean by that is we are fallen, you know, to use Christian language, we are fallen uh, people, you know, we're, we're prone to all manner of, of vice and shortcoming. But also, on the other hand, uh, we are made in the image of God and aspire to a kind of perfection. And in the Platonic tradition, that's called uh, an erotic phenomenon, the fact that we are attracted to something ideal. And um, so I think that awareness of this doubleness underwrites uh, really the sort of view of man during the Christian centuries. And importantly, it puts limits on uh, sort of the manipulation of man for
private gain. And if you recall the sort of classical definition of tyranny is rule for private gain. So um, I think to, to kind of resist tyranny, you have to have some idea of um, human dignity so that you can sort of see human degradation when it's uh, at work. And you also emphasize, in, and not just in this article, but in, in um, your most recent book, Why We Drive, and it's a leitmotif, I think, in, in your writing that, uh, that the classical view presumes a kind of essential competence that ordinary people are there, they are subject to degradation and are subject to self-degradation because of their fallenness. They have a spark of transcendence in them, positive, but in the main, they, they're capable of self-governance, I guess, would be the classical way of saying. Um, they, they, we, it's fitting that they should vote and determine the future of the country because on the whole, they're, they're capable of, are competent of navigating through the world. Yeah, I mean, one can certainly overstate that in a kind of populist register, right? I mean, the founders, the founding fathers of America had a pretty jaundiced view of democracy, because they were schooled in ancient history and they knew the fate of democracy and attempts to degenerate into tyranny. Um, so they, you know, created this mixed regime. So that you know, it wasn't a um, kind of naively rosy-eyed view of the tendencies of uh, you know the people, something like that. But I think in our t- in our time, we it's a, it's an opposite hazard that we has been coming to fruition, namely a kind of um, hubristic <clears throat> conceit of mastery on the part of a technocratic sort of self-appointed guardian class that, you know, routinely exempts itself from its own sort of theories of, of human nature, right? If, if, it, if the, uh, the, the premises that are operating here that human beings are stupid and fragile and hateful and basically obsolete. Um, that, of course, doesn't apply to us. <laughs> well, let's, let's dig in here. Stupid. So the, this, this anthropology, this emergent anthropology assumes that human beings are, I mean, we, they're basically incompetent. Yeah. So I, I opened the article with a little anecdote. This was... This must have been 2012, somewhere around there. So there's a, there's a Google self-driving car that's being tested on the roads. And it comes to a four-way stop. And it comes to a complete stop and waits for the other cars to do the same before going through because that's the rule it was taught. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that's not what people do, right? They, they roll through. And so the Google car got completely paralyzed, blocked the intersection. Uh, you know, someone had to come and reboot it. It was, it was a mess. So tellingly, the Google guy in charge of this project said that what he had learned from this project thus far was that human beings need to be less idiotic. 
by which he meant, of course, they need to be more like machines. Exactly, the rule followers, more like robots. Now, completely invisible to him, what was is what actually was going on at that intersection, which presumably is what normally happens, which is that people make eye contact. You know, if there's an ambiguous case of right of way, maybe one person waves the other through. There's a whole sort of social intelligence on display in everyday activities like that. But it was completely invisible to this guy. Maybe he was one of the classic, you know, quasi-autistic computer guys. But this is a hugely, a hugely consequential blind spot. You know, Tocqueville thought it was in everyday sort of small bore practical activities demanding improvisation and cooperation that the democratic character is formed. So I think the aspiration to do away with such moments for the sake of a kind of machine-generated certainty has real political implications. You point the nudge, Cass Sustein, and the whole nudge concept. Uh, that The underlying premise there is that you know, the, the, those who know best need to be nudging the, uh, the ordinary man who really can't get his act together uh, in the right direction, get him into his 401k and all that sort of thing. So it does underwrite a, at least a kind of soft policy of social control. Yeah, so before, so yeah, the nudge comp- goes out of behavioral economics. The basic premise of which is that human beings, for the most part, are guided by pre-reflective biases and heuristics. We don't sort of think um, you know, rigorously about things. We have rules of thumb that we rely on that aren't, you know, they're not fully, fully rational. Now, this was actually a necessary revision of the human, you know, our picture of the person, I think, because in the previous decades, um, I don't know, since World War II maybe, um, you had the rational market actor model. You know, and the premise there, which seems a bit implausible, is that we kind of calculate the best means to some given ends and then kind of maximize our utility, which presumes that you have a perfectly lucid grasp of you know, your own interests and what the consequences of your actions will be is kind of a, a fantasy picture. So behavioral economics sort of corrects that. But the problem is in the implementation of these ideas, and by the way, they were hugely uh, sort of institutionalized um, with behavioral insight teams that, uh, you know, the Obama administration set up, um, David Cameron's government in the UK, these now operate in, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of corporations, NGOs, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, In the institutionalization of it, uh, what gets lost sight of is that these um, kind of sub-rational modes of coping with the world pragmatically are actually pretty rational in the Bayesian sense, that they capture regularities in the world. Um, So it's it's a perfectly legitimate way to go about life, but it becomes, in their hands, the premise for 
ramping up programs of social control. And the, the insidious thing about this is that these operate beneath the threshold of awareness. The point is to nudge people without them being aware of it. So it's a way to non-coercively get people to do what you want them to do without having to engage in the inconvenience of democratic politics. Yeah, I, I, uh, there's a kind of therapeutic side of things where, where instead of, you know, the, the populist voter is to be engaged as a patient who requires some kind of therapy, not as a fellow citizen who, with whom you have to debate the pros and cons of policies and so on and so forth. Uh, we're pretty far along on that, it seems. Um, the second, though, we are obsolete. I think you move from uh, from less to more severe threats to our democratic politics. So obsolete. This has to do with, um, you know, this idea that artificial intelligence, self-driving cars, uh, the the knowledge economy, et cetera, et cetera, are 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 really making us, we you know. I guess my crude way of saying it is that the American elite needed the industrial worker to triumph in the Second World War, and he uh, needed the you know millions of men in the army, and vice versa. The common man needed elite leadership uh, in order to in order to, to triumph. There's a lot of talk going around now about how, uh, at least the mentality is that well we don't really need sort of the takers, to use the Romney language, or the deplorables, to use um, Hillary Clinton's language, or even the notion of flyover country. That started to be bandied about in the 90s. It's really kind of unimaginable that uh, elites would talk about the vast inner reaches of the country as somehow dispensable. Uh, so we, we do seem to be in this odd uh, cultural moment where whole swaths of the population are deemed kind of unnecessary and perhaps a burden. Yeah, so the version of that that I go into is, uh, you know, human beings are essentially inferior versions of computers, and so they're the weak link in any <laughs> system. So, you know, the, the driverless car scenario that we started with is a good example of that. If you could just get human drivers off the road, it would clear the way for driverless cars, because it turns out it's very hard for these two forms of intelligence to share the road together. <clears throat> so you almost have to ban human drivers. Now, and one thing to know about that whole push for autonomous cars is that it's not in response to consumer demand. I mean, there's polling on this. People aren't that keen to uh, to give up driving. So, um, you know, the computational theory of mind is still the kind of basic um, view of the mind that prevails in mainstream cognitive science, even though it's come in for, I think, quite devastating criticism from the more phenomenologically minded um, people in that discipline. But, you know, bad philosophy of mind uh, tends to get very well capitalized. 
decentralized because it's easily operationalized, right? You can build systems mm -hmm. based on it. And if you can remake the world uh, to sort of make it fit your simplistic model better, then uh, you can sort of deploy this. And then, and then the complaint is, is against human beings because, you know, the system needs clean inputs to operate properly and human beings you know they're, they're messy so if we could just you know do get rid of the things. humans yeah. <laughs> and then we're fragile yeah so i guess you said the pandemic uh kind of brought this we need to be protected i mean obviously safe spaces and all that sort of thing in the university context over the last decade is a manifestation of that. We have to kind of police and regulate all kinds of human interactions because everybody's so fragile. But it gets it gets more extreme at a at a if one thinks that um, people's you know that the primary purpose of government is to protect uh, the vulnerable. Um, citizen, uh, then, yeah, the, the, it becomes a kind of, as you say, a kind of perpetual state of emergency. Because there's always, you know, part of what it means to be human is to, response, is to respond to sort of the ongoing threat of our mortality. Right. Um, yeah. And COVID, like you mentioned it, I mean, it just, it brought this dynamic, I think, to everyone's awareness because you had this massive kind of, um, transfer of sovereignty from representative bodies to, you know, unelected functionaries of various agencies. And so this amounted to this quite extraordinary extension of expert jurisdiction over every domain of life. And of course, the premise is that we need to be protected. We have to suspend the usual constitutional principles. And once you're alert to it, this sort of governing by emergency you see it everywhere. Sometimes it's a moral emergency, like white supremacism. Um, mm -hmm. Lately, it's been this, you know, the health emergency. And this really gets to the sort of founding myth of the modern state altogether. Um, Leviathan, and the, the, the rationale for it is that um, we are prone to, um, well, we're vulnerable. Um, the particular vulnerability that Hobbes had in mind was um, that of faction and civil strife. Um, but more broadly, uh, one has to think of oneself as vulnerable because that's the reason why you enter into this social compact and agree to um, abide by the kind of monopoly of coercive force in the state. But the problem is that this emergency, which gives rise to Leviathan, you know, the original emergency, has to keep being renewed um, if Leviathan's going to thrive, which means you have to keep renewing this consciousness-raising program that people should think of themselves as vulnerable. So when you see the guy riding his bicycle with his double masked, <laughs> I think you're seeing sort of the, the ideal human type as envisioned in this political theory in, in, as a kind of anthropological um, project. Yeah, our friend Mark Schiffman has written yeah. on this. 
the way in which the modern political condition is one of um, uh, yeah, uh, vulnerability, uh, a, a kind of emergency situation where we could be killed at any time, we could die at any moment, which is, of course, true. We could die at any moment. And so the purpose of government is to, is I mean, the legitimacy of government rests in its capacity to protect us from that eventuality. Right. And I think it's pretty convincing that, well, especially in this populist moment where the uh, people are not the legitimacy of the current regime is unsteady, that it would amp up. There's an incentive for the regime to amp up the language of victim status and vulnerability in order to renew. It's, you know, we will protect you. We will secure you. Yeah, I think that's precisely right, that we're, we're living through a legitimation crisis of the state. And because it's built its legitimacy on its capacity to protect us, it means we're just, you know, one existential threat after another. And so government by emergency has become almost the norm rather than the exception. And there's a... I mean, certainly certainly the climate rhetoric is a rhetoric of emergency that... that, uh, uh, it's quite um, chilling to me because I think I listen to what people say, and if if that's if if they really believe that to be the case, then it would justify pretty much any measure of coercion. Or you know, you could just have nuclear energy, <laughs> right? If we really right. thought this was an existential threat. Uh, well, I'm I'm of two minds. I can't figure out whether there's a certain kind of emotional need for crisis then people are double-minded and they talk of crisis but they don't really but they still you know wind up living their lives as if there were no crisis uh or whether it, it it's more sincere uh, but either way it does fuel a a rhetoric that would justify post-democratic uh, means of governance yeah i think climate is the ultimate emergency right because it's any solution you might posit is a very long-term solution, one that requires a wholesale remaking of society and kind of supervision of every activity, um, economic activity. So it's really perfect um, as a crisis, which is not to say that, you know, the climate isn't actually changing and that it's due to human activities. All that can be perfectly true, and it can even be dire and consequential, but you can also notice that um, it's awfully um, useful for in, in this kind of political dynamic that we've been describing. And, you know, now, given how much investment of institutions across the globe, how much investment in climate catastrophe there is, well, now it's a... Uh, it's an, it's an assertion that's too big to fail on merely scientific grounds, right? If, if tomorrow we were to discover, oh, wait, it's actually not a problem, can you imagine the political crisis that would cause for kind of institutional power on so many levels? That's what I told people during 2020, uh, spring of 2020. Um, some of my friends thought that, well, uh, they, people would realize that we overreacted. And I said, oh, no, 
it's impossible now for our leadership class to admit that the lockdowns were a mistake. You know, we just spent, you know, in May of 2020, uh, we'd spent a couple trillion dollars. It's just, at some point, you know, there may be, it took close to 20 years or 15 years before the Iraq war could be questioned. Right. You know, by you're allowed to actually say it was a mistake. And that may be the case with the lockdowns. But the crisis, atmosphere of crisis, really comes to the fore in your final, your fourth and final element of this anthropology, which is that we are haters. Um, it's the crisis of we're, we're always on the verge of a pogrom. Uh, Hitler is always just around the corner. Yeah. Bull Connor is still the commissioner of public safety in Birmingham, Alabama. Or if, if he's not, it's, it's we're a hair's breadth away from that uh, being the case. Yeah. So here's a, a moral emergency that is kind of every bit as intractable as climate and requires every bit as much of a complete top-to-bottom transformation of society. So whatever else may be true about these um, ideas that that we're haters, it's also true that it can serve as a device of social control and for gathering yet more power bureaucratic center. And so in Europe, you know, the Holocaust is really the event of the 20th century, I think, you know, politically. And it, um, it has um, become the linchpin for a remaking of Europe, right? So the, the idea here is that nationalism uh, tends inexorably toward Nazism. And so if you want to forestall uh, fascism, you have to essentially get rid of the nation state. And so the project of building Europe, as I've said, rests on this um, idea that the nation is sort of an illegitimate political form. Now, in the United States, you know, we spent a lot of blood and treasure to defeat the Nazis. And we didn't, you know, we weren't collaborators as so many European institutions were. Um, So it's hard to pin that kind of um, guilt on Americans using the idea of of Nazism. But we had something else, and that was slavery. I think slavery has come to serve uh, kind of like the the Nazi atrocities and the Holocaust did in Europe. For us, it's the... um, you know, the event that it is sort of interpreted as the secret inner truth of America altogether. And to remedy that, um, well, as Joe Biden said in his inauguration, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion would provide the master principle for the entire federal government, which means that there's a kind of supervisory gaze that has to be extended over every domain of life, essentially. So again, you can be agnostic on the substance of, um, you know, white supremacism and its, um, you know, its prevalence and how powerful it is, 
you can be agnostic on that while also noticing the function it plays in contemporary um, kind of efforts to gather power to a bureaucratic center. You've written and you write about it in this article, the role of the study that was published in the late 40s, the authoritarian personality, uh, which actually uh, does treat fascism as a clear and present danger. I agree with you. I do think, um, uh, as I say, it's Bull Connor, not Adolf Hitler. Uh, it's Jim Crow, not uh, National Socialism. Nevertheless, it's striking how how present Hitler is in our political discourse. Uh, Biden talking about semi-fascism. Uh, every you know Trump, uh, uh, Stanley uh, Jason Stanley, philosophy professor at at um, yeah, Yale, wrote a book warning about the coming fascism, the return of Auschwitz you know, sparked by the Trump presidency. So there is, you can, again, you can be agnostic as to the Trump's meaning, and you can certainly um, be generous in your assessment of people who are overwrought with anxiety about these things. But still, as you say, notice that, wow, it's really, if, the, if, if, if one takes all this language seriously, then the crisis sort of mandates uh, uh it's a supreme emergency. Uh, and if the voters were to be so foolish as to reelect Donald Trump, this line of thinking goes, then the wiser heads need to prevail and, and reverse the consequences. Yeah. And you mentioned um, this book, The Authoritarian Personality. So this is early 50s. This came maybe 1950. So, um, so this was uh, a a group of sociologists, um, mostly at Berkeley, headed by Theodore Adorno. So he is one of those um, Frankfurt School guys. So these are, um, well, the most interesting part of this to me is the element of um, Freudo-Marxism, is what uh, they were calling it. So this was a wing of the psychoanalytic movement that got politicized uh, in the 30s. Wilhelm Reich is the main guy. Actually, we're going beyond yep. the articles. I'm, I'm just riffing now beyond the article. And the, uh, the idea here is that authoritarian tendencies are um, cultivated in the family based on a Freudian theory of repression and, and such. And so if you want to forestall the possibility of fascism, you have to work on the family. And in particular, uh, the problem figure here is the father. And so the project is to destroy the ancient mystique of the father, um, as Philip Reed put it. And so immediately after World War II, well, Okay, now five years later or so, this book comes out. It becomes the most influential work of sociology in America. And about the same time, you have this build-out of the therapeutic state. One of the sort of central elements of this is sex education in schools. 
the idea here, to put it crudely, is that you're going to have to get Americans sexually unrepressed. You're going to have to get them masturbating more, <laughs> or you're going to get... In order to prevent the return of... Exactly. The... I mean, it sounds preposterous, but I mean, I'm not making oh, this well, up. Anybody who... I would... There, there's a two-volume work, and it's, there are lots of longueurs. One doesn't need to read much more than the introduction and the conclusion. But it's a real eye-opener to to read. And you realize that this is a rationale for uh, the cultural revolutions of the 60s, yeah. really, that were the... You, you wrote a great piece in your substack, Arpedelia, about the post-war psych-op of, you know government agencies working hand in glove with universities to try to promote kind of the re-education of the American people on the most intimate matters yeah. <laughs> having to do with sex and the family, all justified by a kind of righteous belief that in doing so we would protect our society from becoming fascist. Right. So the, the sort of inflammatory uh, shorthand for this, uh, which is not actually too far from the truth, is that the sexual revolution was a government psyop launched uh, actually in the 40s, immediately after the war. And there's, some, there's just some fascinating um, history there that I recount in my substantive Arcadia. It's really good. And uh, also that, that study, the authoritarian personality, it's at the root of the notion that uh, to be socially conservative is to be uh, authoritarian or a fascist. Uh, because if you look at, they describe someone who thinks that children should be disciplined or the rules should be clear. This is a sign of a proto-fascist personality. Yeah, so Christopher Lash has this great critique of the authoritarian personality, the book that is. And <clears throat> he points out that what they're recommending is essentially the kind of family patterns that was already prevalent in the upper middle classes, a more lenient child-rearing style, um, more kind of unisex parenting roles. Um, so, so the... A Dr. Spock approach to child-rearing. Yeah, yeah, right. And You know, Mary Douglas in Natural Symbols, which is really her anti-1968 book, because it was published in 1970, uh, she she minds that insight deeply. Uh, different family, different forms of um, social authority in the working class versus in the upper middle class, and she saw the um, the in the Catholic Church the uh, elimination of the Friday fast and all many other changes as a kind of Anglo uh, Anglo English elite, Catholic elite punching down on the Irish Catholic. Uh, masses and, you know, had immigrated to England. Hmm. And there's a lot to that. Like to, there's a lot like to, to that. It's kind of a class war. I'd like to check that out because the, uh, you know, what Lash really brings out is the really hatred for the working class in um, post-war left. So, the, you know, the new left in the 60s, this becomes quite clear. You know, you have, yes. you know, it's like the, uh, the sort of yeah, the student radicals getting beat up by the construction. Yeah, workers. exactly. Um, and the <laughs> seeds of that really are in this um, sort of Freudo-Marxist turn, because you know the working classes tends to be sexually conservative compared to uh, the bourgeois. Where do we go from here? Let's let's 
just briefly here at the end, what, how do you see a way forward? I guess we have to have a new anthropology, yeah. but that's a tall order because the whole academic culture is deeply invested in what I call these, these are all reductive accounts of the human condition. Yeah, new or maybe an old anthropology. Mm. Um, I, uh, I think so. Solzhenitsyn in his in the Gulag Archipelago, I think it is, has this great line. I'm not going to get it exactly right, but that the line dividing good from evil runs not through political parties or between different classes, but right through the middle of every human heart. So that mm -hmm. that speaks to this doubleness that we opened with, um, and I think you know if our ruling classes had a better sense of this line running through their own hearts, it could mm. help to moderate the kind of hubris and special pleading, really, by which you know one exempts oneself from these kind of low opinions about human beings in general. Um, yeah. But there's also the other side to the doubleness. You know, you mentioned Dumos and Eros, and which is that uh, sort of ordinary people are actually capable of quite remarkable wisdom and kind of a genuine heroism. Yeah, and I think um, one thing that undermines um, our awareness of that possibility in people is this dogmatic insistence that there is no objective good, that it's all subjective, mm. which is really a novel development in the modern West. I mean, as C.S. Lewis points out, every society believes in some objective order of good. Um, but when you debunk that, um, I think it short circuits the prideful basis of self-government because it makes it harder to perceive the degradation of man that comes when he's treated as raw material for a kind of social cybernetics. Um, whereas if you treat him as a creature who has this potential and therefore this inherent worth that has to be recognized, it puts limits on that um, sort of manipulative tendency. One of the things that anguishes me is that this kind of solipsistic view that there is no, uh, it, it has the effect of, uh, it, it can dehumanize us, right? And it, it feeds into, it makes people de demoralized, not just in the literal sense of, of lacking kind of moral discipline, because what's the point if there is no moral truth, uh, but also demoralized in the sense of um, undermining their spiritedness. Yeah. Uh, because there's nothing to serve and defend, uh, nothing to um, sacrifice for. Lash, Christopher Lash, that is, has this great line. <clears throat> I don't think he was a believer himself. I haven't seen any indications of that. But just in his historical studies, he noticed this. He says, submission to God makes people less submissive in everyday life and less prone to resentment and kind of, um, you know, making excuses for themselves. And, 
maybe the flip side of that submission to God would be, um, you know, the idea of the incarnation, God becoming man. It's really an assertion of the dignity of man. Um, so it's, you know, there's this perfection that, that, uh, that, that's the source of our being in the image of which we were made. We were made. So that, I think, anchors or can anchor um, a kind of a hard, how to put it, um, you know, in light of that picture, um, the project to kind of remove the human element from every human activity and substitute some kind of machine-generated logic or replace the unclean clamor of democratic politics with expert administration. These projects begin to look like um, you know, really anti-human anti in a way that um, really touches on the very core of what it means to be human. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, this uh, it's a wonderful article. Again, it's in the August-September 2023 issue, the title, The Rise of Anti-Humanism. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks, Rusty.